Today, our reading is from Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's read together our prayer of illumination. Father, in the wilderness of our hearts, prepare the way of the Lord. Through your word and by your spirit, bring life to our barren souls. Lift up every valley, lay low every mountain, and reveal your glory in Christ that we may see it together as your people. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So uh, when I was a college student, I went with a college ministry just about every summer down to Daytona Beach for two months. It was really focused on spiritual formation, learning to pray, read the Bible, share our faith. But I think one of the most formative things for me spiritually was that we all got a full-time job in Daytona. And for a couple of those years, my job was at Daytona International Speedway. And I was on the green team, which meant that I ran a weed eater for about seven hours a day. So wake up every morning, gas up the weed eater and the mower if I'm lucky, and we'd eat drainage ditches. It's a good job. Now, Daytona in June and July happens to be quite warm. And I learned, I knew nothing about the whole sport. The Daytona International Speedway track is two and a half miles around. I learned that by edging it. That'll do something <laughs> to your shoulder that you'll never recover from. And it's asphalt, so it's not a straight line and a little warmer as a result. It's good times. So uh, I learned. <laughs> Also, that our job was not just the inside of the speedway, it was all the grass parking lots and the grass outside and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, for us to cut the entire thing going around, not just on the inside, but all the way around the outside, it took about two weeks. You know what happens to grass after two weeks? <laughs> you start all over again. Uh, so, <laughs> vanity of vanities, right? No, but it gets, it gets better. So. Um, <laughs> It's race week. I didn't know how people did race week. Apparently, people uh, bring their RVs in about a week beforehand, and they live there, and I still have to weed eat around people. Um, 
And then there are also multiple races leading up to the big race on Sunday, which I also didn't know. And I learned that any time somebody crashed into the grass, it was our job to level it out, resod it, and make sure it all looked good for the cameras for the next race, and the next race, and the next race. But the big race on Sunday was the one that really mattered. So people will stay up all night on Saturday night to make sure that the, the grass looks good for the race on Sunday. And then we watched the race. I'd never seen a race before, and, and we got to go. And the winner celebrates by doing donuts, and the second those back tires hit that grass and it starts kicking up, something inside of you just dies. <laughs> really? And then on Monday, you come to work, and the smell is something that you can never remove from your nose. And you start asking the question, do I really have to do all this again? What's it for? Right? The vanity of vanities. But we feel that deeply with most of our work, not just a summer job, but all of our work, we can feel the loss. We can feel the question of why do I keep doing this? It's maybe the project that you spend two weeks working on because your boss asked you to do it, and then you, you bring it to him, and he says, this isn't what I was looking for. And you say, but I, I really thought it was exactly what you were looking for. And the work is a waste, and you start over. Or maybe it's the dinner that you spend a couple of hours preparing. And your kids say, can I have something different and throw it on the floor? Or maybe it's the patient you've been working with for months to help them rehabilitate so they can go home and live a life free of the injury or the problem. And three months later, they're in your office again with the same symptoms because they didn't actually continue that regimen that you worked so hard on them with. And we feel the loss, we feel the emptiness, and we feel that rounding cycle over and over again. And we start asking the question, what's the point? Is it really worth it? I think Philip Ryken in his commentary says it really well. He says, here's one of the great frustrations of our existence. We are born with a longing for permanence, a deep desire to do something that will endure or to make something that will last. Yet the under the sun reality is that we spend our whole lives working to gain something we cannot keep. So we're not going to cover every verse in Ecclesiastes. So we skipped verses 12 through 17. We talked about pleasure last week. We skipped those verses, and now we're here. But those verses are important, and I want to summarize 12 through 17 really quick because it provides a backdrop for the rest of the book. You ready for the summary? We're all going to die. <laughs> That's it. He's talking about if I'm wise and I use my time well and I use my life well, I end up in the same place as the fool who squanders everything. And so that sets up kind of the haunting backdrop behind all the verses over the next few weeks. It's death. And death puts life into perspective, right? When we think about that there actually is an ending to our lives, what matters right now? And so that's what sets up this passage. Ecclesiastes is seemingly depressing, right, when you read through it. But I think, and apparently God believes it's necessary that we have a healthy dose of honesty about the world we live in. Everything's not perfect. Everything isn't guaranteed to go well. The world is broken. And if we're going to honestly look at the world, then we have to honestly look at what's really going on in it. 
I heard a lecture one time by a guy named Andy Crouch, and he said something that has stuck with me really deeply for a while. He said, um, cynicism is honesty without hope, and naivety is hope without honesty. I tend to fall towards the cynical. Some might fall the other direction, but when we read Ecclesiastes with that in mind, some of us get frustrated. It's like, why are we talking about all this stuff that's so down? Well, because we need the honesty. And some of us, when we see the turns of hope in the book, we say, I'm not buying it. Things don't really get better. But I think what we actually get in Ecclesiastes is not cynicism, not naivete, but we get a redemptive perspective of life, one that can handle the honesty that deals with real grief and brokenness in the world, but it can also have a real hope that's not just escapism, but a hope that, as Hebrews says, is an anchor for our soul. And so we're going to carry that with us as we go into this, and thankfully we get both the honesty and the hope in this passage um, we're going to start, though, by being brutally honest. I mean, the passage starts with it, right? Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil. <laughs> Preach that. That'll be fun. <laughs> our work has vanity. The fruit of our labors go to another person. That's how he starts, right? In verse 18, I hated all my toil, which I toiled under the sun. Why? Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. So here's the immediate problem he's saying. When I die, everything I worked for is going to go to somebody else. It could be you're thinking about your own work, the company you built, or the, the corner of your organization that you worked so hard in, and you're looking at the successor and going, oh, man. Or maybe it's what you're going to leave behind, and you're asking the question, will they be wise, or will they be fools? And some of us are looking, going, uh-oh, Will I be wise or a fool? But the reality is, death puts a new perspective on the whole thing. What's going to come after? Solomon, if he wrote this, or if this is somebody taking on kind of the um, persona of Solomon as he wrote it, it didn't go well, right? Do you know the story? Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam's first act was to not listen to his father's counselors, but to get his buddies around and tell them what to do. So he threatened all the people that he would be excessively mean to them if they didn't obey him. And then five years later in 1 Kings, we get the picture. 1 Kings 14. And this is in light of everything that Solomon had built. If you remember what Jeff preached through last week, uh, we had houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools, slaves, possessions, herds, flocks, silver and gold, treasure of kings and provinces, singers, concubines. He built this palace, this temple for God, Solomon's temple, one of the great works of the world. And here's what happens in 1 Kings 14. In the fifth year of his son, King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasuries of the house of the Lord. 
and the treasures of the king's house, he took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made, and King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them in the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door in the king's house. As often as the king went to the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to his guard room. Solomon's life's work was literally destroyed within five years. The kingdom was split. Twelve tribes, only two of them remained with his son. He lost ten-twelfths of the kingdom. Solomon's temple was destroyed. All the treasuries, all their savings, everything went to Egypt within five years. So Solomon isn't talking theoretically The preacher isn't talking theoretically in this passage. He left everything to a fool and it was gone in almost no time at all. It can be painful to think about retirement. It can be painful to think about handing things off to a successor. And we really don't know what will happen. Ultimately, death puts the value and meaning of our work into perspective. But that's not all that's wrong. The work itself can actually be a problem, too. Sorry, I feel like Eeyore, but we got to. We got to be honest. That's where the text goes. The work itself can be toil. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2.22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Now, the word toil in Hebrew is used more in Ecclesiastes than anywhere in the Old Testament. And the word has a particularly negative overtone. In the rest of the Old Testament, it's translated as mischief. Uh, Sometimes it's translated as evil. The word, or, or even oppression. And so, Ecclesiastes uses it to talk about our everyday work. And I think that means something. There's something vexing. There's something sorrowful about the work itself. Now, to understand where he's coming from, we've got to take a step back and look at at how the Bible even talks about work. Um, Before sin entered the world, God makes Adam and Eve, right? He makes them good, and everything that God made it good, the work that God did was very good. And when he looks at Adam and Eve, he gives them work to do. Before sin enters the world, there's work to do. In Genesis 1.28, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So there's this work that involves cultivating the garden. It involves parenting. It involves uh, filling the earth and ruling over everything that God had made. And that's good. But then the fall happens. People believe the lie. Adam and Eve believe the lie of the evil one that they can find joy apart from the Lord and they lose everything. And what happens is this curse. God curses the devil. He curses the woman through childbirth and her relationship with her spouse. And then he curses man. And this is what the curse on Adam says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
So death looms its haunting shadow over work, and as a result, to somebody who has spent his whole existence gardening, there's now thorns. And it's now much harder. It doesn't bear fruit the way that it used to. And it's labor. So something has changed dramatically, and that means when we enter our work, it's not as fruitful as it should be. Everything doesn't go the way we hope it should go, because work itself is actually cursed. Ecclesiastes says, our days are full of sorrow and work is vexation. That means that things break down, parts fail, people disappoint. The first summer I went down to Daytona, I did hotel maintenance. I repaired dimmer switches in hotels, I painted seawalls, I fought against rust in one of the most humid places that there is, in this hotel called The Beachcomber. Two months working as hard as I could in this place to make sure that it didn't fall apart. And three months later, it was leveled by a hurricane. <laughs> really? So I come back the next summer, and they hadn't cleared it all. It was literally just a pile of rubble. And I think I understood deeply what it meant that work was cursed, right? What's it for? I tried to keep this place looking good and working right, and now it's gone. We feel that in all sorts of ways. But we also see that there's resistance to good work. We might be trying to do really good work, but there are people that are against us in that work. There are parts that break down that we didn't think were going to break down at that point. There's policy that slows us down to the point where we think, can we even do the work that we're supposed to do? There's physical pain that limits our ability to do the work that we feel like we were made to do. And as you heard Bruce say, there's the loss of work altogether. And as people who are created to be workers, that can be deeply painful. And you wonder, God, what, how will you provide? There's resistance to work. Have you ever tried to wipe the nose of a toddler? <laughs> One of the hardest things I've done in my life. <laughs> But as a whole, we're imperfect people, and because of that, we do not do perfect work. It's cursed. But there's also work that advances the curse. If the curse brings death, then there are things that we can do in our work that actually speed that process along. It could be through ignorance, right? Look at the tobacco industry for years. People might say, we had no idea what it would do. But it still brought death. There's also bringing the curse through intention, right? Research comes out about the tobacco industry and it keeps going. And it harms people. You think about human trafficking. And you might think, yeah, well, of course, that's a terrible thing and that's underground, but it's not all underground, actually. A lot of it is in our normal econ economic system, right? People have a heart to use people use people for personal gain, personal pleasure, and they exploit it. They put it online, and then people click, and it revenates. Uh, my words aren't working. It creates ad revenue, and the ad revenue comes to actual bank accounts because there are banks that are willing to hold those accounts, and there are credit card companies who are willing to run those transactions, and there are account executives who work with those companies. 
So somebody might say they work at a credit card company, but what they're doing is one of the most sinister evils that we could come up with. There are much lesser ways, maybe, we would think, but there are a lot of ways that our work is actually accelerating the destruction and devastation that comes from the curse, that accelerates death. There's also the environments that we create in our work. Verse 23 said, uh, our days are full of sorrow, and even in the night, our heart does not rest. Maybe our end product is not harmful to people. Maybe our customers aren't being hurt, but maybe the way we run our workplace is, abs- is the kind of thing that makes people not want to wake up in the morning and come in. It could be that the bottom line gives you an excuse to treat people like dirt, or your efficiency metrics allow you to yell at somebody who's made in the image of God. Or everybody's under an incredibly high stress because you're working so hard to keep your overhead low and everybody's overworked. Or maybe it's an office culture that's so highly competitive that having any positive relationships in the office seem impossible. The culture of by any means necessary puts ethics secondary to the bottom line. And you've got a culture where everybody is looking for a way to cut a corner just so that they can get over that person to get to the promotion. Or maybe it's a place of where industrialization has taken over to such a degree that people are doing mind-numbing work, menial work, over and over and over again that it almost feels dehumanizing. You see, our work can actually accelerate the curse and lead people to dread waking up, to be anxious, to have days full of sorrow, and at night their heart does not rest. Do you feel it? I get it why in verse 20 he says, so I turn my heart to despair. So what do we do? Some of us might need to ask the question, does my work need to exist? Whether it's the industry itself or the way that I do my job or the environment that I create around me, whether I'm in charge of something or I just have such a terrible attitude that nobody wants to be around me at work. What could I do to change that? But change doesn't come fast. It might take a long time. So should we declare with the preacher here, I hated my toil and I give my heart up to despair? Have a good Sunday. (laughs) Thankfully, there's a turn here. It's actually the first turn we see in Ecclesiastes. Thank the Lord. Verse 24, it says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity at chasing after the wind. So how in the world did we get from I hated everything to there's nothing better? Well, first, verse 18 says, I hated, past tense. So that whole first paragraph is reflecting back on the way he used to look at things. Verse 24 is a turn. And there's a pattern here too. 
You heard this also in verse 23. This also is vanity. In verse 26, you hear this also is vanity. You hear this also is vanity all over Ecclesiastes, but there's a change in this one. This also is from the hand of God. We've been looking at life under the sun. But what the preacher is doing right now is lifting our eyes above the sun to the creator of the universe and saying, if my perspective changes and I realize this life that I can see with my eyes isn't all there is, then maybe I can look at things a bit differently in the world. Philip Riken says, these verses are an oasis of optimism and a wilderness of despair. As such, they, are, they marked the turning point in Ecclesiastes, not just on the subject of work, but for the argument of the book as a whole. It's only the second time God has been mentioned in Ecclesiastes, but it's setting up the entire rest of the book. If I see things from the perspective of God, instead of the perspective of my eyes only under the sun, then it's going to change my whole view on my life and my work. So when we see things from God, we can see that there's a value in our work. Work from His hand actually does have value. He starts by saying in, in verse 24, there is nothing better. Now that's hyperbole, right? He's not saying there's nothing better in the whole universe, but he's, he's saying there's no better perspective on work than to see it as a gift from God. Here's what he's not doing. Philosophically, he's not being a nihilist saying, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Pretend like it's not real. Just enjoy the moment. He's also not being escapist. He's not saying just ignore the hard questions in life until you actually have to face them and we'll just walk away in blissful ignorance. No, he's been brutally honest already, right? He knows what's real about our toil. But now he's turning and looking at things from the perspective of God, work as a gift. See, if my work is my God, it will only lead to despair and emptiness. But if my work is a gift from God, then it doesn't ultimately define me. And there's a possibility of actually finding joy in it. You see, he says, uh, work from the hand of God, uh, let's see, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? So eating and drinking, as he said in verse 24, that's provision, right? At the most basic level, in an agricultural society, if your work gives you the ability to eat and to drink, then through your work, God is providing for you and for your family. It's a gift. He also talks about, in verse 26, giving wisdom and knowledge. Your capacity to work is a gift. Can you communicate well and effectively so that others join along? God made your mouth. He gave you the ability to speak. Are you a good problem solver? He wired your brain. He formed it so that you could do that. Your capacity, do you have a good work ethic? Because of a parent or a mentor or a teacher, somebody God put in your life, it's from God that you intersected your life with that person. Your capacity to work is gift. Everything you do is a gift from the Lord. I used to listen to a podcast called How I Built This. A guy named Guy Raz was the host. He was a fantastic 
question asker, and he would interview people who had built companies, some of the biggest companies we know now, and he, he talks to them as entrepreneurs and what they were thinking. And at the end of these incredible stories of some of the most tremendous success we've ever heard, he asked the, the same question almost every time. How much of your work, your success, would you count as your own skill and ability and work ethic, and how much would you say is luck? And over and over and over again, almost everybody answered the question with, man, it was the right place at the right time. 90% luck. You're hearing over and over and over again. And I couldn't help but think, maybe it's not just luck. God has a hand in everything. Everything that we have is gift. The successes, the struggles, the failures, He's with us through all of it. But all of it we see as gift. And then he says, enjoyment is one of those gifts. Enjoyment is from the hand of God. Now, it's translated as, as enjoyment, but the way that it's actually written is let your soul see what is good. So it's talking about perspective. How do you see your life and your work? Can you see the good? Can you see the gifts that God has put in it? That's what leads to joy. If you have a perspective that doesn't say, this defines me, if it fails, I break, but this is gift, then we can actually walk into our labor with joy. The mission of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun, is hopeless and should logically lead us to despair unless we're able to look up when we look up and see one above the sun, there's hope for meaningful life and meaningful work. David Gibson says it this way, when we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, the reality can stop us from expecting too much of all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Death reorients our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. The temporary nature of our lives shows us there's a need for something eternal, something beyond what's under the sun. And that's where we can see work as blessing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead. For those who are in Christ, who, who believe that he lived and he died for our sins, and that he rose again, conquering sin and death, the chapter lays out that we too will be united with him, and that these bodies that are decaying and breaking down will one day be renewed and restored and resurrected. And at the end of this very long chapter explaining all of that and what it looks like to have a resurrected body, he concludes with a therefore. How do we live now before that happens? And it's actually a reversal of Ecclesiastes 2. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. Redeemed work in light of the resurrection, not just in light of death, but in light of the resurrection, can actually have meaning and hope. 
If death loosens our grip on our identity being bound up in our work, then the resurrection reorients us to see work as God working through us to be a blessing to the world. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What does it mean to be in the Lord? It means that you're a follower of Christ. It means you've been united to him, that his spirit lives in you. And so your labor in the Lord is not just, it's not less than, but it's not just what we would consider ministry work. I think it's all of the work that God has called us to do. As a matter of fact, I would say that one of the ways that we love God and self and neighbor is through the work that he's called us to. There may be no greater opportunity in your life to use your gifts and talents and abilities to love your neighbor than through what you spend most of your time doing each day. To the glory of God, you might work in logistics. And you can get food from a farm on one side of the country to a grocery store at a reasonable enough price so that your neighbor can afford to eat. You're loving your neighbor through that. I'm going to give us a few thought experiments. How can your work be a blessing? Think maybe first, how does your work relate to Genesis 1 through 3? Maybe Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and cultivate it. You know, it's interesting in the curse that God mentions bread, right? Through the sweat of your brow, you'll make bread. Bread doesn't grow out of the ground, right? In the garden, Adam and Eve had already figured out how to take the raw materials of God's creation and combine it with some other materials and fire to make bread. They were already doing the work of creative cultivation in the garden, right? And that might be your work. That could be an obedience to the call of God as an image bearer to creatively work the ground to creatively take what God has put into the world and make it into something, being inventive, to bless the world. That's a wonderful gift. Parenting might be the first vocational call mentioned. Your labor is not in vain, even in the monotony and the repetitive difficulty. It's not in vain. If you provide income for your family so that they can eat and drink and find enjoyment, your labor is not in vain. You might jump ahead to Genesis 3. A lot of professions are created to fight against the curse, right? If the curse brings death and every medical profession is pushing against that, that curse, ultimately, we can't win that, but we can extend life. We can make the experience of life better for people so that they can enjoy what God has given and be a blessing to other people. In agriculture, we can literally fight against the thorns that disease, the crops. You might work in cybersecurity and you protect people from attacks that they never realize and you never get a thank you for. You might work in sanitation. Have you ever thought, what if that job didn't exist? The disease and death would be exponential. So you might think, what would happen to the world if my industry didn't even exist? Your labor is not in vain. You can love your neighbor, and you can love your Lord through your work. But you can also think about Genesis 3 and ask, is my labor actually harmful? 
And do I need to change my industry? Or do I have a position in my company that could bring change, whether it's to the way that our employees experience day-to-day -day life or the things that mark our direction and our goals? What would it look like to make my workplace a blessing instead of a curse? Is it even possible? And then just asking, how is my work actually a blessing? Is it a blessing? Some of you may be so buried in an organization that you have no idea, you've never even met a customer from your company. I had a friend who was a financial analyst in a large life insurance company. And he sent spreadsheets up to the next person, who sent them up to the next person, who sent them over to this person, who made decisions that went to this person, who then talked to this person who actually faced a customer. And asking, what is my work actually for? Well, in life insurance, it was to care for widows and orphans, right? To provide financially for people in the greatest grief of their life. And so some of you have to think very creatively to realize, how does my work bring blessing? The way you do your work can be a blessing to your coworkers, absolutely, but it can also be a blessing to the customer who receives a product or a service because you worked well on it. You can love your neighbor through your work. One more thing here, let worship shape your work. You hear a narrative about how the world works every day. When you worship, you're reminded of the one who created the world and has an overarching story that brings your life great value and dignity. And coming here can help you reorient. We've been talking a lot about kingdom here over the past couple of years and the kingdom of God comes in different ways. It feels upside down, it feels hidden but God is bringing his kingdom through his people and he's bringing it through you where you are and where most of you spend the most time of your days. God is working through you in your kingdom. You think about loving your neighbor. Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he tells the Good Samaritan parable, right? And it, it switches everybody's thoughts from, it's not just the people that I like, but it could even be my enemy. And so as you think about what it looks like to love your neighbor through your work, it might be your coworker that you like, making life easier. It also could be a market competitor. You pray for enemies in some sense, right? What would it look like to be a blessing to your industry, not just to your company? When I think about the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ, he lost position, he lost power, he lost wealth. He came in poverty. His work was to glorify the Father, and do you know what he did to glorify the Father? He took our sin on, his, on, on our behalf. He died for it. He went to the lowest place for the joy set before him. You know what that joy is? the glory of God to get you. It was loss to redeem humanity and to assure a resurrection. And in that we can have hope in our work. We can have hope in our labor. Max Rogland says it beautifully, I think. The major problem is that we find too much of our identity, our sense of worth, and what we achieve we see our work as being valuable only if, it results, if, it, if the results are big enough or long-lasting enough. If a successor should squander the inheritance we pass on to them, we feel as if our efforts are wasted. 
This is a very common way of looking at things, and it is thoroughly opposed to the gospel of grace and the Lord's sovereign wisdom. The Lord is not waiting for us to achieve great things so that his kingdom can advance. Beloved, we are God's children now. He already receives us as beloved children, regardless of what our labors might achieve. And we'll close with 1 Peter 3, 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. That is the fruit of Christ's labor that he hands to you. Not to push against the results of the fall, but to conquer it and to end its results ultimately. With that hope, we can walk into our labor to love him and to love our neighbor. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us and your son with an everlasting love. That in his finished work, we have life and our work can have meaning and joy. Thank you, Lord. We love you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.